the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm not there today or the rest of the week. So you'll have Morgan Ortegas from Nashville, no less. We're working on making sure that Morgan can always be here when I can't. And so, Morgan Ortegas, thank you for coming back, my friend. Take it away with news of the day and especially what's going on in Israel. Well, good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Um, Not Hugh Hewitt, as you just heard, Morgan Ortegas. I've been on a few times for Hugh. I'm very excited to be back. I'm really excited that I'm not in D.C., that I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live. Very happy to be here. We're going to talk about a lot of things going on today in Washington. We're going to talk about the speaker's race. We have a new speaker designee. I went to bed early. I don't know about you. Woke up to a new speaker designee. We've got several members of Congress that we're going to talk to about. Also, since we're in Tennessee, I had to have uh, my senator, Marsha Blackburn, on. So she's going to be on the show today. It's a jam-packed show. But I've got to start the show uh, talking about what's going on in the Middle East. Just so you guys know, and, and I think at this point you're used to listening to me or, or maybe even seeing me on television, uh, I spent most of the last 20 years in and out of the Middle East, uh, working in the Middle East in the government, um, or in business. So it's an area that I that I understand well. I lived in Saudi Arabia. I was in Baghdad for a few months in 2007. And of course, I was extremely lucky to be a part of the Abraham Accords in the Trump administration. And so I've got to lead off with Israel because this is just so heavy on my heart. I keep going back to the fact that just three years ago, almost three years exactly, I was standing in the White House watching historic peace Four peace deals, the first in 26 years between Israel and Arab states, watching Arab leaders uh, and Israel come together along with President Trump um, and make peace, make recognition. I thought naively at the time uh, about how much that meant that the Middle East was changing for the positive, for the good, that it could never go back. What do we actually know? Well, it can go back. Whenever you screw up your foreign policy, you can set the Middle East ablaze. And that is exactly what Joe Biden has done. And it is so incredibly frustrating. You know, it's just very, very simple calculation of of what we did in the Trump administration. We looked in the Middle East and said, you know what? Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, as certified, by the way, by multiple Republican and Democratic administrations. Iran funds terrorism. Iran spreads chaos throughout the region with their proxies. And then we have over here to the other side, we have our greatest ally in the Middle East, the state of Israel. We have our Gulf Arab partners and friends. So we thought, let's do something novel. Let's change what the team Obama did. Let's not reward our enemies like the Islamic Republic of Iran, like they did with billions of dollars, billions of dollars in sanctions relief, pallets of cash. Let's instead reward our friends and and, and put our friends first and embolden our friends. You you know, it was there was always this concept. And by the way, this even happened in the Bush administration. The Trump administration is the one that got Israel right. 
And so it's not just about being a Republican. It's about looking at the Middle East differently. And President Trump looked at Israel and said, I'm not going to force you to chip away at your land, chip away at your promises, chip away at your commitments. You know, U.S. foreign policy from Republican and Democratic administrations were less chip. Let's chip, chip, chip away at Israel, make them give concessions, make them give up lands. And in the Trump administration, we said, you know what? No, we're not going to do that. In fact, we're going to take the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv. We're going to put it in Jerusalem. We're going to recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. All of these actions that we were told would lead to World War III in the Middle East didn't happen. But what happens within Biden accepting office? Three months in, Hamas started attacking Israel. We went four years without that happening because people knew that there was a president that was going to back up the state of Israel. Now we're in chaos again. And it's just so incredibly frustrating for somebody who worked inside the Trump administration. And I think we got the Middle East right to see the chaos, to see the bloodshed on both sides, by the way. When you get the Middle East strong, everybody dies. Everybody suffers. So I, I just want to go to a quick uh, uh, cut here. We've got uh, John Kirby, who is sort of, you know, he's not the White House press secretary, but essentially has to act as one since he's the only one who sort of seems to know what's going on at the White House. Uh, let's listen to what he had to say about Biden's foreign policy. Um, sort of as you have the um, Australian Prime Minister coming tomorrow in the midst of all of this activity around the Middle East, can you just give us a sense from the president's perspective, how is he balancing these two sort of immediate foreign policy objectives versus sort of his longer term foreign policy objectives that the um, prime minister's visit sort of embodies? Well, He's balancing it well. He's doing, he's doing it. I mean, uh, if you want to give him a you know report card, A plus. I mean, it, it, the, the, he's commander in chief. That never stops, and the and the and the and the duties and responsibilities are literally global. I mean, we are one nation that has truly global responsibilities, and he's managing it all. I probably shouldn't have played that because I'm just irritating myself very early in the morning. We're on Central Time, so it's 512 in Nashville. Listen, I, I know John Kirby. He was a former State Department spokesperson before I was in the Trump administration. He was obviously in, in Obama. And, and so there's sort of a camaraderie amongst people who are, you know, who have had those roles. And I try not to criticize, but at some point you just start to look like Baghdad Bob. I mean, there is not a per, I don't even think Biden himself would give, would give himself an A plus on foreign policy. I mean, how could you? You have chaos. You have war. You have inflation. This is why Biden has historically low numbers going into a reelection. I mean, the guy is not up to the task. Like I said a second ago, three months into his presidency, Hamas starts to test. Do you want to know why we saw the attacks we did yesterday? Because three Three months into or on October 7th, three months in to the Biden presidency, Hamas starts attacking Israel. Seven months in, Kabul falls to the Taliban after America being there for 20 years. It did not have to end that way, my friends. And then a year into the Biden presidency, what happens? Russia invades Ukraine. Now we're in year three and we have the worst conflict uh, going on in the Middle East, the worst killing of Jews since the Holocaust. Let me say a lot of you guys know this. Me and my family were Jewish Americans for former Admiral Kirby, retired Admiral Kirby. To give Biden an A-plus on foreign policy, when more Jews were just killed less than three weeks ago than at any other time since the Holocaust, is offensive. It's wrong. It's offensive. And, and you know what? This sort of bluster is why these people keep screwing up time 
and time and time again. And, and back when Afghanistan, back when Kabul fall, fell and we lost 13 of, of our most brave young men and women, many of them who, by the way, were not even born when 9-11 happened, or maybe they were toddlers when 9-11 happened. When that fell, I thought one of the most disgraceful things happened. No one was fired. No one even had the dignity resign. No one said, you know what, this is my fault. I should step down. They all just kept going. No, no, this is just what happens when you end a war. Uh, And because there was no accountability uh, two years ago, whenever whenever Kabul fell to the Taliban, whenever we lost 13 people uh, in that suicide bombing near Abbey Gate, when there was no accountability, I thought these people... They're going to keep repeating and repeating and repeating the same problems. And then they give and then they have the gall, the gall after 30 dead Americans, at least 10 Americans are still held hostage. And they have the gall to say it's an A plus foreign policy. I mean, you know, maybe that's why we have the the state of our universities and the state of our education system is the way it is. I mean, I just like. I can't. But I'll tell you, since I got to get myself out of this bad mood, uh, thinking about what Kirby said about the foreign policy, let's go to call for eight and listen to my good friend, Brian Hook. It is incontrovertibly true that when Trump came to office, the Middle East was a mess mm-hmm. and he left it better than how he found it. Mm-hmm. That is simply the case. Yeah. And he deserves a lot of credit for it. Doesn't get much credit for it. Um, I was disappointed when this administration came into office. First thing they did was delisted the Houthis Mm. as a foreign terrorist organization. Secretary Pompeo and I spent the better part of a year uh, getting them listed. It Mm. was one of the last things we were able to get done. That same terrorist organization today has Iranian missiles that can strike Israel. And the first thing that the Biden administration did, Secretary Blinken coming into office was delisting the Houthis. I think that's a policy mistake. Uh, well, so first of all, if you don't know who that was talking, that was Brian Hook, a uh, long foreign policy track record in Republican administrations. And Brian uh, was our Iran envoy uh, in the administration. But he didn't just do Iran. He was also one of the negotiators on Abraham Accords. We spent so much time together. And I just had to play that clip for all of you because I thought that Brian summed it up so well. You know, he just mentioned the Houthis, which I forget. So if you think about Iran and if you think about the Middle East, Iran has been smart in the sense that they fund these terror groups that sort of encircle uh, Israel. One of them is the Houthis. They are down in Yemen, which is the bottom of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. We spent like a year going through the technical process of getting the Houthis designated as a terrorist organization because you can't just like decide. It's not a political decision. And what? So we do that at the end of the Trump administration. What does the Biden team, Secretary Blinken, basically do on day one? They, they remove the Houthi terrorism designation. Did they get anything for it? Did they get the Houthis to claim that they would stop supporting terrorism or stop shooting ballistic missiles or, or, or drones or whatever at Saudi Arabia and at Israel? No, they got nothing for them. They just delisted them because they are political hacks and they are screwing up the Middle East. But we're going to get it right. Stay with me until 9 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Central. I'm Morgan Ortegas. Good morning, everybody. This is Morgan Ortegas, not Hugh Hewitt. I am in for him for the next couple hours. I think we have two and a half hours left. We have somebody pretty amazing on the line that I'm really excited. Um, I got, I woke her up early. So, uh, let's welcome my friend, Representative Kat Kamick. She is from Florida's third district. Congresswoman, good morning. 
Oh, good morning and early morning. <laughs> it's I'm on Central Time, Kat. I'm in Nashville, so I'm I'm up an hour early. I did, Kat. I did. I did feel bad this morning whenever I woke up and I saw how late you guys were up voting last night, and I thought, oh boy, I've got Kat calling in early. So, Kat, for everybody who's just waking up and didn't see the news overnight, it sounds like we have a new speaker designee. Is is that the second in one day? G- give us an update. Where are we? <laughs> Yes, it, it, it's been a wild, well, heck, I would say it's been a wild three weeks in the House of Representatives, but the last uh, 24 hours have been uh, really intense. And anything for you, Morgan, I would wake up at two o'clock in the morning if, if, if that's what it took, But because you're amazing. But um, yeah, last night, I think it was a, about midnight or 1130 when we started actually leaving the room. And uh, we today, uh, folks will be introducing or or he'll be introducing himself and people will be meeting Representative Mike Johnson from the great state of Louisiana as the new speaker designee. And at noon today, uh, we will all go to the House floor and make it official. And I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised about uh, Mr. Mike Johnson. Yeah. Interesting. So you think he can get to 217 at noon today? I think so. You know, um, there. I think the world has, not just America, uh, not just members, but I think people have learned a lot about the inner workings of the House. And hmm. one of the things that has been sort of a tradition of sorts, because there's no real uh, formal mechanism that has been clearly laid out in the Constitution of how we elect our speaker. It just says in Article 1, Section 2, that the mm. House of Representatives shall choose, and they spell it C-H-U-S-E, choose their speaker. Mm. And so there's there's really just been precedent set about how we do it, whether it is by secret ballot, but whether it is uh, on the House floor, whether it is by resolution. There's been a number of different iterations of how we do that. And so over the years, it's evolved into we get together as a conference, do a series of secret ballots. The first candidate who gets a simple majority becomes the designee. And then in theory, everyone's supposed to get behind that person. Now, clearly, now that we are on, I think, our fourth or fifth uh, speaker designee uh, at this point, that hasn't worked very well. So what both uh, Representative Tom Emmer from Minnesota and Mike Johnson did yesterday, we have two speaker designees from yesterday, Uh, After they secured the number of necessary ballots, what they did was they asked for a roll call in the Mm. room so that they could know where they they had some work to do. And uh, there was about 20 plus people that had taken issue with Representative Tom Emmer. And then there was um, only people voting present. And it was a very small number of people when it came to, to Johnson. And so as we were leaving the room, he looked at me and said, I got some calls to make. I said, yep, go get them. And so he's going to work through, he worked through the night and then he'll be this morning again, talking to members, making sure that everyone um, has been heard, their ideas have been listened to, and we'll go to the floor because I'll remind folks, we typically can only lose four. We have some absences. And so people not being there will actually affect the number that is required. So and it sounds like you're a Mike Johnson fan, Kat. I am a Mike Johnson fan. You know, he and I serve on weaponization together. Uh, We Mm. both consider ourselves constitutional conservatives. And he really, in so many ways, is an originalist. And I appreciate that. Because in an anger-tainment era that we are living in, 
yeah, where it is performative political theatrics. He mm-hmm. is a calm, steady, thoughtful voice, and that's rare. And so for us to really get back to the basics of what the founders intended, I think he's just the guy to do it. And so I'm very excited for yeah. this new era, and um, I think he'll be a fantastic speaker. Well, I mean, I feel like this is kind of breaking news in a sense, because when I saw (laughs) him, no, I I think, Kat, you know, because when I saw him, I thought, okay, here we go. Here's another person that's a designee and is going to go to the floor, not get 217 and we'll be back where we started. But you seem pretty confident about him. And you said he's a calm and steady force. Kat, I think you're a calm and steady voice. You know, we are so lucky to to have you. Kat, remind me, what are the main areas in your district? What are the what are the big cities and counties that you cover? So I cover all of North Central Florida. So uh, normally, I know you see me do this, Morgan, you, you stick out your thumb upside down and <sighs> you kind of take the Florida map and and that top portion from Jacksonville suburbs to the Florida Georgia line out to the Gulf Coast, down into um, Central Florida, Ocala, Gainesville, Lake City. That's my territory. It's 12 counties. And I call it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 12 counties. Girl. Yeah. Well, you know what? We're getting that's good for running statewide. I, I got to tell you, Kat, you know, I, I'm at the point that I almost don't want to pay attention to the speaker's race anymore because we keep <laughs> going back and forth. And I'm like, somebody just wake me up when there's a speaker. But, you know, Kat, I started my monologue. We spent we spent a lot of this the half hour the, of the show this morning talking about what's going on in Israel, talking about 30 dead Americans. And the fact that we have these theatrics in the House whenever we have more Jews killed at any other time since the Holocaust. We have 30 dead Americans. I think that's the most Americans dead in a terror attack since 9-11. And and then we see chaos and dysfunction in the House. I trust you, Kat. If you think that Mike Johnson is the guy to get it done and get to 217, then I think that is welcome news because, you know, the people that are, I, I, I would just tell you, the people that are wearing, you know, the Scarlet Letter A t-shirts and that are creating, um, trying to create press and attention for themselves and fundraise for themselves and in in this crazy eight, you know, I find it repulsive. I really find yeah. it repulsive cat, you know, as a, as a Jewish American, when we have had so many people killed, uh, you know, in this terror attack, uh, so many Jewish Americans killed the fact that people are using this as an opportunity uh, to showboat and to get press for themselves is, is just, it's gross. I don't know what you think, but I think it's gross. Oh. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. Like I said, I mean, this is the entertainment era where it is about stomping your feet and saying something crazy on Twitter so that you get shares and 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 likes. And and to me, that's really frustrating because nine times out of 10, it's not accurate. Uh, You know, as, as I was, you know, last night, we were going through this process actually all day yesterday going through this process. Uh, I was watching my colleagues put things out on social media that weren't true. They would do one thing in the room and then go out and tweet something that was the opposite of what they had wow. done. Wow. Wow. And, and that's really hard to, to to square when you're trying to work with, with someone, um, that lack of honesty. But, you know, I, I think all of the men who, who had put their name up for speaker, uh, they, they were all honorable men and mm-hmm. they all came with different ideas. And, and it takes a, a leap of faith to jump into a race like this, for sure. You know, I, I think um, my friend Byron Donald, he was in the race. He would have been a wonderful speaker. And at one point in time, you know, during the, the day yesterday, we all were, were working and, you know, trying to get votes here and there. And 
um, there was a there was a moment of coordination where you know I looked at Byron and I said Byron, here's the play. And we laid it out, and he said, okay, I think this is what we need to do, and and we ended up giving votes, you know, sending our support over to um, Johnson. And, you know, I look at Johnson, I said, what do you need? And, you know, the whole thing, the whole dynamic just changed. And so it's, it's well, if I can, if I can be so bold to say, you know, whatever happens in all of this, I mean, you should be rising up the ranks of leadership. I mean, you're powerful. You're bringing people together. You're a strong woman who knows her mind. And, uh, you know, the house might would be would be better run by people like you, my friend. I I really appreciate it. (laughs) Can you tell me uh, just so we and, and thank you so much for the education that you gave us at the beginning of the segment on how we choose a speaker i i you know appreciate the history lesson there can you tell me what now happens let's just say mike johnson wins today at noon in that vote what happens Mm -hmm. with the supplemental because that's one of the things that i think is fuzzy for a lot of us because we're running against i believe another deadline to fund the government cat we are and so today at noon there will be a quorum call and that usually takes about an hour that's just to establish the number of votes um, that we're going to need in order to establish the threshold to get a speaker. Then there will be a roll call. C-SPAN will cover it, and everyone will have to stand up and give the name of who they're supporting. Mm-hmm. If we lose four votes, that means he cannot secure the speakership. So mm-hmm. very, very high stakes on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I will say in, in the weeks that have passed, we have come very dangerously close. Even at one point, uh, we were within one vote of the Republicans turning the House gavel over to Hakeem Jeffries. And wow. Um, wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. It was some scary times. But, you know, I, I will tell you, um, Representative Johnson, I guess I, I should say now, Speaker Designee Johnson, he said last night, he said the very first order of business, we're not leaving the floor once the once the gavel is secured. We are going to stand with our friends and ally Israel. We are going to pass a, a resolution Love it. and let the world know where we stand unequivocally. And that is with Israel. And we will condemn these attacks. We will get the ball mo- uh, rolling. And you're right, Morgan, we ha- are up against the deadline. November 17th is another fiscal cliff in which the government shuts down if we don't take action. Johnson Can I ask you one quick thing before we have to go, Kat? One of the things that yeah. struck that I noticed is that 43 of the votes yesterday were for McCarthy. Is there a potential McCarthy resurgence? Um, there there has been some, uh, I call it palace intrigue, um, going on behind the scenes. And we're tracking, we're aware. Um, so we're, we're making yeah. sure that there is a unified front rather than a fractured Uh, Well, thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for getting up early. Congresswoman Kat Kamek, my friend, she's from the great state of Florida. Thank you for dialing in early. We'll be back right after the break. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Good morning, everybody. Around America, I am Morgan Ortegas. I'm filling in for Hugh Hewitt. I'm coming to you live from where I live now, Nashville, Tennessee. And so I had to actually call in our next guest, who is my congressman from Tennessee's 5th Congressional District, Andy Ogles. Andy, do we have you on the line? Andy, can you hear us? You do. Sorry, I had muted myself, so use your ear. Sorry, sorry <laughs> No, no problem. Good morning, Andy. I was just, uh, I've been doing the show from Nashville. Normally, I have to do the show in uh, D.C., and we have a studio here in Nashville, so I'm really excited. I was just telling our audience that you are actually my congressman, and so I wanted to get your take, Congressman Ogles, on what in the world is happening in the House. We just heard from Kat Kamick from Florida. She thinks that Mike Johnson may get to 217 at noon. What say you, my friend. Yeah, I, I think that uh, Mike Johnson is one, he, he's a great congressman uh, from the state of Louisiana. He's conservative. He's Christian. He's he's not an HFC member, but he's HFC aligned. Uh, he, at one point, he almost joined HFC. And uh, I think he's going to be able to get there. And quite frankly, if you felt the energy in the room last night, people were chanting his name. And, 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 you know, really? timing, life is about timing. Politics is about timing. I think, quite frankly, we're all tired of this speaker race nonsense. <laughs> uh, we're ready yeah. to move forward. We have a yeah. country to run. We have an Israel, Israel resolution that we need to pass. And so there's so much work. And he's the right candidate at the right moment. Uh, that's that's really gosh, this is so interesting for me this morning, Andy, because, you know, when I woke up very early here in Nashville to come host the show, I realized while I had been asleep that you guys had a new speaker designee. And I'm going to be honest, I thought, okay, here's another guy that's going to go up (laughs) to get, you know, not get to 17 and we're going to have to go back to the drawing board. So but but between you and Kat Kamek, man, I'm starting to feel like we might have a speaker of the house today. I actually want to ask you that we've been talking a lot. I've been talking a lot about my monologue about uh, is what's going on in Israel and the Middle East. You know that I was obviously in the Trump administration at the State Department, worked heavily on the Middle East. Um, and, and so, Andy, tell us a little bit more about what this Israel resolution is that you just referred to. Yeah, you know, so um, the first step is just to show our support for Israel, uh, the people of Israel. Uh, there is going to be at some point a vote on supplemental uh, which is additional funding for Israel. Now, the White House is going to try to bundle that with Ukraine aid and perhaps border. Uh, but one of the things, uh, so, so if you take a step back and you look at the speaker forum, you, you had five candidates, and, and they all said the same thing, that all of that funding needs to be separated so that if you're voting on the funds for Israel, that that's all you're having to vote on. It's not mm. it's not being not trying to yeah put it all together. Money yeah. is right. And so uh, Israel is obviously our, our priority, but so is the border. So I think the first thing we want to do is show yes. our support for Israel. And I always use this as an example. And if there was a radical faction within uh, Mexico that was bombing Houston and the Mexican government was not taking its its part in, in ceasing that, stopping that, we would move in. We would occupy Mexico City within 72 hours. We would protect our homeland. And that's the same type of situation that Israel is in. Now, that's, that's right. oversimplified. But that being said, is they have a right to protect their homeland. And they've been under constant attack uh, since the early 2000s. You know, there was a, the land for peace deal. Well, they gave them the land, but they haven't had any peace. And so enough is enough. 
You know, Andy, we were just talking about that at the beginning of the show, that I was saying the difference between how the Trump administration, how we approached Israel versus other Republican and Democratic administrations was everybody chips away at Israel, right? Everybody says, give up this, make this concession, more land, more concessions, more this, more that. And in the Trump administration, we just said, no, actually, we're not doing that. We're not making Israel give anything up. And in fact, uh, we're going to move our embassy to Jerusalem as it's supposed to be. We're going to recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. And, you know, as Israel faces incoming from Syria today uh, over the past few weeks, you know, thank God we did that, you know, that recognition of the uh, of the Golan Heights. So I, I just appreciate what you're doing, how you're leading on this. You know, you are you are my congressman. And so I, I am uh, as your constituent, Andy, I am I am really grateful for your leadership on this Israel issue in the House. I want to ask you quickly, because I, I, you you introduced something that I think was really cool in the House, and I just hope you can explain it to our audience. Uh, you introduced the Blocking blocking the Entry of Malign Actors Act. Can you tell everybody a little bit about what your legislation was doing? Well, we, we've actually, so myself and Tom Tiffany, a few others, we, we've had a couple pieces of legislation that what we're trying to do, so we have the Gaza Act, which, which prevents you know, the United States from taking in uh, refugees from other countries, you know, at one point, mm-hmm. and I'm not picking on Nikki Haley, but she, 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 she suge- suggested that we take a million Palestinians into this country. Look, oh, Egypt and Jordan has said they don't want them. Why? Because they are a radicalized people. And I don't mean to, you know, I'm talking in broad strokes, but they're, they're taught from childhood to hate I- Israel, to hate Jews, to hate Americans. And so yep. the Western way of life. And so you just, that is, those are the facts. Yeah. And then, well, so thank we, you. We... Thank you so much, Congressman Andy Ogles. I really appreciate you getting up early. I know y'all were up late in the House. Uh, my congressman from Tennessee's 5th Congressional District, where I'm coming to you from, actually, for this radio show, Andy Ogles. Thank you, my friend. We will be back after the break. I'm Morgan Ortegas in for Hugh Hewitt. When the government used emergency edicts during COVID to restrict the gathering and worship of churches... Three pastors facing the risk of imprisonment, unlimited fines, and their own churches being ripped apart took a courageous stand and reopened their doors in the face of a world that chose to comply. The Essential Church is a feature-length documentary that explores the struggle between the church and government throughout history. This fascinating story uncovers those who've sacrificed their lives throughout history for what they truly believe in. Rediscover why the church is essential and how we prove that this stand remains true from a scientific, legal, and most importantly, biblical perspective. This is not your typical movie. It'll change your life. You need to see this movie with your friends and family. The Essential Church is streaming today exclusively at SalemNow.com. That's Essential Church, streaming at SalemNow.com. Thank you so much, Hugh. I really appreciate it. Hi, everybody. Uh, I am in for Hugh Hewitt, my very good friend. This is Morgan Ortegas. I'm very excited because I'm actually getting to do the, sh- the show today from Nashville, Tennessee, where I live. Normally, I have to do it in D.C. I'm f- to fill in for you uh, here in Nashville. And actually, speaking of that, I have somebody that I just called the GOAT, the greatest of all time, uh, my senior senator from the state of Tennessee on the line, uh, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn. Uh, senator Blackburn, do we have you? You've got me, and I am delighted to join you, Morgan, and thank you for the great work that you've been doing on the issue of Israel. 
and helping people to be aware of what is actually happening on the ground and in the region and all the connections between what I call the new axis of evil, which is Russia, China, Iran, and mm-hmm. North Korea. So thank you. Thank you so much, Senator. You have just been such a, a, a clear and a clarion voice uh, for for the state of Israel, for the Jewish people. You know, a lot of people don't know it, but we actually have very old Jewish communities in Tennessee and Nashville. The temple that I go to is over 100 years old. We have a very big Jewish population in Memphis. Um, and and a couple years ago, people don't know this when there was some anti-Semitic things said in the state by by an elected uh, senator, you spoke out against it very clearly. And so I I just it means a lot to me. You have been such a such a clear voice uh, whenever this issue comes up. But but Senator Blackburn, tell me, what can the Congress do to support the state of Israel? I know I just had uh, two representatives on. They were telling me about the vote for Mike Johnson today at noon. I know we still need a speaker of the House. But what can what can the Congress do to sort of force the administration to support Israel? Yes, and there are several things. First of all, the Senate passed a resolution last week in support of Israel. It is important globally that Congress be heard on this. And that needs to go to the House. They need to assemble themselves, elect a speaker, move forward. Then I have a resolution that would defund the U.N. Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. This is something that has been there for about 70 years. President Trump defunded it, and we thank him for that. But President Biden came along and re-upped every dollar plus more. He's put about a billion dollars into that agency. What we found out, they hire people that are affiliated with Hamas, and Hamas even uses their facilities in Gaza to store weapons and ammo for Hamas. So that could be done. You also have different pieces of legislation dealing with the funding for the military and for humanitarian aid for Israel. Now, Morgan, as you know, Israel has been a a major purchaser of our military equipment in addition to that. We provide them with funds every year, about $3 billion. Now, they've got a a list of things that they need. Some would be a purchase. Some would be things we would would give them. And as I say, if it shoots, sells, flies, or spies, and (laughs) Israel needs it, we need to make certain they have it. I love that. they They defend themselves, and they don't ask us to fight their wars. But they do need the things that are necessary to fight their wars. Now, Jackie Rosen and I have a a resolution that would go after this anti-Semitism that is on college campuses and call that out. It is bipartisan. Uh, We are joined by James Lankford and Chris Van Hollen as the leads on that resolution. We are trying to move that forward. Marco Rubio has one that would individuals that are visa holders from the U.S. if they have spoken out in support of Hamas or participated in any of these college uh, rallies you've seen on college campuses. We also Mm -hmm. are trying to cut federal funding to these campuses. It is unseemly 
that you have professors on these college campuses that are out there trying to rally yeah. students in support of terrorism. I, this is unbelievable. Yeah, and you know what? I need to be held to account for this. I I could not agree with you more. There has been, listen, I was never for free college to begin with, just because I think if you want free college, you should join the military. Uh, that That's how you get free college. Um, but there is such an institutional rot uh, in our universities, which we've known about for some time, but have been exposed. You know, I, I was just looking at something as I was coming, it was driving into the studio here in Nashville. Uh, I used to live during the Trump administration. Uh, I lived near the State Department and lived near GW University. Um, and there are, they had some GW University students that were putting on the, on the, on the building, uh, on the buildings, uh, the, through a, I'm not sure how they did it through a light, but putting really anti-Semitic statements, uh, for everybody to see, you know, you go through, you're hearing about these, uh, rallies, which are, you, you know, the thing that bothers me, Senator, is when they talk about, oh, we're, we're rallying for the Palestinians. No, you're not. You're supporting a terrorist organization. That, Plain and simple. These this terrorist organization burned whole families alive. So I, I just want to say I, I and I do want to have I do have one more question for you that I want to get to. But I, I appreciate your leadership. And I've got to say there is just there is a it is our university system is rotten to the core. It's been exposed. And I just appreciate everything that you and your fellow senators are doing, whether it's taking federal funding away, taking away the visas for people that are that are here. Um, you just shouldn't be able to support terrorism in the United States. It's it's disgusting. But one thing I do want our audience to know about you, Senator. And I, as a mom to a young daughter, and, and I know you have children and grandchildren here in Nashville, um, you have been a very big proponent of protecting children from social media. This is something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, my daughter's almost three, so she's not yet on social media, but something I worry about. And I'm hoping you can fix this before she gets old enough to want to be on social media. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? Yes, Senator Blumenthal and I have the Kids Online Safety Act, and it is supported by about half of the U.S. Senate, and we are thrilled in this day and time to have that many co-sponsors on a piece of legislation. Morgan, what it would do is put the burden on social media to establish a duty of care, to do Mm. safety by design, to give a toolbox that kids and parents can use to keep kids from being exposed to things that are really illegal in the physical world. When you talk about pornography, Mm -hmm. um, ads for alcohol, uh, drugs, meeting pedophiles, meeting drug dealers, uh, information on suicide, on eating disorders. And we met yesterday with a group of kids and parents. Some of the parents had lost their children online. A couple of the parents had kids that are now in recovery. We know that a third of all teenage girls have considered suicide. And Can we say that number again? A third? Did you say a third of teenage girls? My goodness. Yes. My goodness. The CDC report, Morgan, it was stunning us, a third of our nation's teenage girls have considered suicide. Much of this is driven by what they're seeing on social media. They feel their life is inadequate. They feel they're not as good. They're not as beautiful. And they're looking at all of these photoshopped photographs. And then they're saying, I can't do this. 
and they give up and it causes that despair. Social media platforms, this is an addictive product. They know it. They continue to try to hold our children. They make our children the product when they are online. As one of the mothers said yesterday, they put that profit in front of our children's well-being, and they continue to push it. Is it it as simple, Senator? I mean, should we just say, you know, you can't smoke a cigarette until you're 18. Maybe you shouldn't be on social media until you're 18, or or am I oversimplifying it? It would be nice if there were a way to do an age verification. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is very difficult in the virtual space. But what we have got to do is put that duty of care. When they know there are videos that are pushing suicide, Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much. Uh, As everybody knows, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. My senator, Marsha Blackburn, so lucky to have her representing me in the Senate. And I'm one of her constituents. Uh, Thank you for being a voice on Israel and being a voice on social media. I am Morgan Ortega's in for Hugh Hewitt until 9 a.m. Eastern. Please join us again after the next commercial break. Thanks so much. Good morning, all around America. This is not Hugh Hewitt, in case you were wondering. He does not identify as a woman. This is Morgan Ortegas. I am in for Hugh Hewitt. Um, it is 6.30 a.m. Central, because I am coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where I live. Um, I am probably a little over-caffeinated. We have a lot of a lot of coffee going on this morning. But, you know, listen, that's okay. Uh, I'm really happy to be doing the show from Nashville. I was just saying to some of my staff who's here, it's really interesting because when you do the show from D.C., it's like a very D.C. building. But doing the show from Nashville, you walk down the halls here and you see all the platinum records and the number ones. And obviously, it's all about country music. I'm a big country music fan. Um, I'm, I'm a big music fan in, in general. If you haven't been to Nashville recently, I know a lot of people come here for the bachelor or bachelorette parties, which is super fun. Uh, don't forget the Nashville. Symphony. It is, I think it's stellar, world class symphony, beautiful Skimmerhorn musical, in addition to all the cool country music stuff here. Um, so I feel very, very lucky to live here and to raise my daughter here. She's almost three. And um, she's been here since she was like four months old. So it, it's pretty amazing. So we're trying to get one of my really good friends on the line, uh, Dave Urban. He should be coming up uh, soon. He's a longtime political operative um, in Pennsylvania, and uh, he's a CNN contributor, business guy. I was just telling all of you a cool story uh, before the break that he actually went to West Point uh, with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, my former boss, and former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. And Congressman Mark Green, who's another congressman representing uh, Nashville, Tennessee. So the four of them all went the same year. They were all together. I, I don't know what was in the water uh, that year, but, you know, clearly, clearly it was something. All right. Oh, I think that we do have Dave Urban on the line. Dave Urban, good morning. Can you hey. hear me, my friend? Yeah. Hey, hey, Morgan, thanks for having me. And thanks for the kind words. It was, uh, it was it's very nice of you. By, by the way, I'm responsible for all those folks' success. Just in case I yeah, you are. That's the dirty little <laughs> secret. You are. So I've got to tell our audience. First of all, thank you for getting up early for me, Dave. I've got to tell the audience quickly a funny story about you. One of the first times I, I met you and, and one of the reasons we became friends is because you embarrassed me to no end in the <laughs> Oval Office. It was my So I am getting ready. I think it was 2018. Uh, and where President Trump is in office.
this. Dave had done uh, a ton of work in Pennsylvania to help Trump win that state, which is, uh, you know, so many amazing stories there. So we're going into the Oval Office and I've never been in before. Right. I have a lot of like respect. It's the Oval Office. I'm nervous. I'm really nervous. I don't get nervous that often. I was nervous and I was really nervous because I am klutzy. And I spill things quite often. And I was petrified that I was going to spill something on the nice, beautiful, like, you know, very light colored carpet. And and I tell Davis, I confess my insecurity to him. And what does he do? The minute we sit down, President Trump says, does anybody want something to drink? And Dave goes, yeah, Morgan wants a Diet Coke. I was so <laughs> mad at him. My uh, hand is, was like shaking. All I could think was, don't drop the Diet Coke. Please don't spill it in the Oval Office and true, get kicked out. So. And, and the president was more than happy. He was, uh, <laughs> I, I, I always tell people, they say, what, what's uh, what's Donald Trump like? I say, to a certain extent, he's like your grandmother. He's always trying to feed you or give you something to drink. Totally. Um, something to drink, yes. something to eat. He's always, whether you're on the plane, uh, in the Air Force One, on his plane or wherever, he's uh He's, he's quite the host or one of the clubs. He's always trying to feed you, make sure you've gotten something to eat. Uh, you enjoy his food and yeah. drink. It's, uh, it's pretty, pretty amusing. That's, that's so true. He's, so he's Dave, a great host. He's, he's a great host. I couldn't agree more. Very generous. When most people don't know this, when my dog died of January, January, 2020, and I was like distraught that my dog died. President Trump called me for five minutes and talked about nothing else but the dog. I thought he was going to give me something to do. Like, okay, now, because I wasn't working for him at the time. But no, he just talked about my dog. But Dave, I have to ask you, there's so much to talk about going on around the world. You have a ton of international experience. You were even nominated at one point to be ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Before we go into all of that, um, we're lucky to have you because you are an expert on the state of Pennsylvania. And one of the most important Senate races uh, will happen this year. Your friend and my friend, Dave McCormick, is running for the Senate. Um, Tell me, this seems like it's going to be an incredibly competitive race. May determine the balance of the Senate. Can you give us an update of, of how you see the state of that race? Yeah, thank, Morgan, thanks for the question. Um, I think that it's going to be incredibly competitive. Obviously, Pennsylvania is a purple state, right? And uh, any race is a close race in Pennsylvania. But this, but the candidate who's running, some of the listeners may, may know, Dave McCormick. Dave ran it in a primary against um, uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz in the last uh, last election cycle lost in a squeaker. Um, obviously, Dr. Oz had great big name ID from all those years on television. Yeah. And, and Dave's name ID wasn't so great. And uh, so he lost a close one. He is back. Um, he's an incredible, incredible human being. Uh, a good friend, another West Point graduate. I've known him for yeah. many, many years. He's from Western Pennsylvania, where, I, where I'm from. And Wait, Dave, uh, was, you know, was uh, McCormick in the same class as you and Pompeo and Esper? He, he, he was a year behind. He got a little, he still got a little, little goodness rubbed off on him from our, from our <laughs> year. So he, he's class of, he's class of 87. Um, but Dave, yeah. you know, he, he's an American success story, right? His father, his parents are, you know, kind of are, are incredibly humble, great people from Pennsylvania. His father was an educa- in education. Um, he grew up on a Christmas tree farm. Uh, he was a wrestler in high school. Went to West Point, was co-captain of the wrestling team, was, you know, uh, a successful Army officer, Bronze Star in the first Gulf War. Wow. <clears throat> Went on to get a Ph.D. from Princeton. and and uh, Does he have a Ph.D. from Princeton? I've known Dave all these years. I didn't even know that. He was a Ph.D. from Princeton in public policy and then and then worked in uh, in the private sector and government at the highest levels. And it just wow. and on top on top of his success, he's an incredible, nice guy. And he's a patriot. He loves our country. Um, he thinks the best years are ahead of us. He is, you know, fiscally conservative. He's pro-military. 
all of the good things that people would want in a candidate. Um, but so so, he's, running but against, tell me, he's running against Bob yeah. Casey, Bob Casey yeah. Jr., who's the who's the son of a very, very, very popular governor in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob Casey's father was a longtime governor and, and, and just kind of a beloved figure in, in, uh, in, in Democratic politics in Pennsylvania. And just to, to remind everybody, um, the, 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 uh, the big case on, on life, on, on abortion, was, was previously Casey versus Planned Parenthood. That's Bob right. Bob Casey's father That's was right. a very conservative pro-life Democrat. Can you imagine? A pro-life mm-hmm. Democrat who was denied the opportunity to speak the Democratic National Convention by Bill Clinton. That's how conservative Bob Casey's father was. Now, wow. however, I will tell you that Bob Casey Jr. is not as conservative and not the same kind of um, person his father was. He's a very nice man, but he's not an effective legislator. He's, he's raised a ton of money, though, in this race, though, right? He, he, he'll raise money because it's going to be it'll be it'll be an incredibly expensive race. This will be Got it. You know, one hundred one hundred and fifty million dollars between the two parties, probably. Um, it, it'll Oof. be the, it'll be the most expensive race in the United States. It'll be the most high profile race in the United States, because, as you alluded to, not only will it determine the balance of power in the U.S. Senate, but maybe determine who's the president of the United States as well, because. That's a good point. Um, you know, I would I would submit that Pennsylvania um, is a must win for both Joe Biden and for Donald Trump. You know, and Joe Biden, I notice, uh, Dave, I notice that he goes to Pennsylvania a lot to tout his economic plans, which I don't know if that's such a such a good idea. I mean, if I you know, uh, listen, I was just ranting. I, I don't know about you. I do the grocery shopping in my family and it's yeah. exorbitant. It's ridiculous. Uh, you know how much how much we're all paying for groceries right now. So but I notice Biden goes there a lot. My, my husband is actually from Scranton and, and my father in law, my brother in law, a lot of our family, my husband's family is still in Pennsylvania, and I know that they are are, are big McCormick uh, fans as well. So you just have um, such an interesting insight into Pennsylvania, so that's why I wanted to um, ask you about it. It'll be a close race. I think I think at the end Definitely. of the day, Dave McCormick wins, and, uh, and, and I think that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee for the Republican Party. I think Donald Trump is going to end up winning um, uh, Pennsylvania, and he'll be the next president again. Really, Dave, you think you think he's going to win the general? Yeah, I think so, too. You know what? The world the world couldn't be any worse, Dave. I mean, it is it's so frustrating to think about what we did to bring peace to the Middle East and and to see how it has just, um, you know, war, death, destruction, chaos, inflation. That's the Biden legacy. Yeah, it's it's quite unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's. you know, what sticks in my mind all the time is just that terrible, terrible evacuation from Afghanistan. And yes, and, you're uh, right. You know, I, I, along with lots of other folks, was on my phone on WhatsApp, um, you know, trying to get people through gate to gate. You know, at, absolutely. At, 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 the, at the airport, you know, tra- talking to soldiers on the ground. I remember being on the phone. I remember being on the line with you. I was stuck with COVID and there was just a group of us who had served in the last administration or, you know, had been in the last administration trying to get friends and people out. And it was, I remember Dave, I had reporters calling me saying, can you help get our journalists out? And I said, why are you calling the former Trump team? Like call the Biden team. It was astonishing. So so those, those, those failures, right. Just stick in my craw. And yes, um, it's really, it's really quite, you know, I, I hope that the American people remember that. I hope that we That's get right. to debate those kind of things. I, you know, I, it kind of gives me concern that these uh, ongoing kind of 
gnashing of teeth and airing of grievances in this speaker race, right? I'm, I'm hopeful that that'll be behind us today. Mm-hmm. We can get on to doing the people's business. We can get do on you to think? Doing... Do you think they're going to elect uh, Johnson? It seems that way. I mean, from all okay. from everything that I could tell, right? I mean, as you, I talked to Mark Green. I talked to a bunch of people yesterday, mm-hmm. and it seems like last night, and it seems like that they're headed that direction. But listen, we've this is like the old um, uh, Peanuts cartoon with uh, Lucy and the football, right? Um, yes. Every, every time Charlie Brown thinks he's going to kick the football, Lucy pulls it away, and he he falls on his butt. So we could, we could see that again here this morning. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful yeah. we don't because. The American people want better. Well, listen, Dave Urban, one thing I know, if President Trump does win, uh, you better be in the administration this time. We need you. Proven business executive, Army veteran. Thank you so much, Dave Urban, my friend. And to everybody, keep listening to us. I'm Morgan Ortegas and for Hugh Hewitt. We'll be back right after this quick break. Thank you. Good morning all around America. Thank you so much for listening in. I am Morgan Ortegas, very happily and gratefully in for Hugh Hewitt, who's out today. Uh, but I do have somebody who I spoke to last week who I've been dying to talk to all morning because she is the person who knows what's going on in the house, if anybody knows. And that is Olivia Beavers from Politico. Good morning, Olivia. Morning, Morgan. Good to see you again. Okay, so originally when I thought about having you on this morning, I was like, okay, Olivia is going to explain it all to me. But I will tell you, I had Kat Kamick from Florida and Andy Ogles on mm-hmm. from Tennessee. Andy, I think, is House Freedom Caucus. Um, anyway, I, I, I will tell you, they both were pretty high on Mike Johnson, which is not what I expected coming into the segment with you. So tell me what you think. Can he actually get to 217 today? Well, I think we're the closest that I've seen out of the 22 days that they have not had a speaker. Um, now, let me walk you through sort of what I saw unfolding yesterday to sort of give you an idea. You had Thomas Massey, who is yeah. a little bit of a lone wolf in terms of how he operates. He sometimes swings with the Freedom Caucus, but he worked well with McCarthy. And he went in before the Mike Johnson vote, and he goes, this guy has 31 votes against him on both, you know, both, fact- both ends of the party spectrum. And then Massey is only one of three Republicans who voted against him or actually, well, voted present and no Republicans voted against him in that room. Mm. Now, the big question mark is the 22 Republicans who are not there. And so it's, uh. it's a question of whether those Republicans were having any kind of protest in terms of not showing up or whether they were just tired because it was hour 13 of them basically being in that room and trying to sort it out. And some people left. Mm. But um, one of them, um, one Republican has told me that they might um, they might be opposing him if he does, if he or she does not receive certain commitments from Mike Johnson. Um, I'm not able to get into exactly what those yeah. commitments are, but they want to talk to uh, Johnson before they give their vote. One question, Olivia, has the rule changed uh, and you're going to know this better than me, but has the rule changed that essentially allows one person to uh, bring up the motion to vacate the speaker the way Matt Gates did to McCarthy? Has that changed? That has not changed. Now, I would say mm-hmm. my Johnson, I think, seems to be in a different position than Kevin McCarthy. Johnson's had pretty close ties to the Freedom Caucus. Um, and I think where we were wondering if there would be more concern is whether it'd be more sort of with centrists and moderates who um, haven't particularly liked some of the votes that he's taken um, or that he was sort of 
seen as a key figure in arguing against certifying um, Donald Trump's election because he's a constitutional lawyer. Um, so we were thinking that those were some of the things that were going to be held against him, but I haven't really heard it from at least reaching out to some of these groups. Um, I They brought reporters into the room when Mike Johnson had done a roll call and no one had voted against him. And hmm. I was looking at moderate, I was looking at Freedom Caucus people, and they were all cheering and looking very excited about him. And I kept asking, do you think that he can get there? And you had someone like Chip Royce saying, I would be very surprised if we can't. And then you have more centrist Republicans like Mark Molinaro also thinking, yes, this is our path forward. So now tell um, us what that was time, sort of reaction. What, what did Johnson argue as it related to the you were saying that he argued for or against uh, the certification of the 2020 election? So he he argued um, he basically, I think, um, one one of the, the things that was being brought up to me as uh, what might hold him back mm-hmm. is he, I guess, talked to some of the freshman Republicans before the vote and basically argued that he thought there was a constitutional um, reason why they do not need to vote to certify. Basically certify. Okay. Okay. Got yeah, it. Vote to All right. Um, okay. That, that makes sense. Um, so one of the things that I noticed in the vote yesterday, um, and, and there's been several votes, so you can cl- clarify it for me and our audience. Um, but I noticed that there was, I think, 43, 44 votes for Kevin McCarthy. Is, is there a chance that yes. Kevin could come back? You know, there's sort of been this Kevin McCarthy shadow over every um, past speaker nominee. And there was a member named Trent Kelly who basically went to the mics yesterday and he goes, mm-hmm. Kevin McCarthy casts a big shadow, whether or not he's intending to do so, but he neither needs to get in or out of the race because he's making it very difficult for us to move on. Interesting. Um, and so um, there were rumors about a unity ticket with Kevin McCarthy on top and Jim Jordan being assistant speaker, but that didn't really have legs. Um, it was sort of a, you know, a push from the McCarthy no world who right, really wanted right. that to happen. But um, I think that really what that vote was, you saw some moderates who were kind of, they were just, just fed up it. with the process. Of, one of the things, yeah, one of the criticisms I heard, say, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, one of the criticisms okay. I heard though, of Mike Johnson is I think he raised like 76 grand last, last quarter. And so I, I've, that's one of the things I heard from some people that were doubtful is like, can this guy even raise money, which we know is important. Yes, it's really important. I think one of the things that we look at, um, Kevin McCarthy was a prolific fundraiser. Yes. And I was trying to ask him about this. Is there some sort of cushion of just being secure itself, though, that brings in this money? If you are the top Republican, will you be able to just naturally call in more money than that's a good point Olivia we've got got to run thank you so much for being on with me two weeks in a row I really appreciate it if you're not following her uh, she's a reporter from Politico follow her you'll understand what's going on in this crazy speaker's race uh, in the house I'm Morgan Ortegas in for Hugh Hewitt we'll be back with you after this commercial break well 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 thank you to Hugh Hewitt for allowing me to fill in Uh, no one can fill his shoes he's just a radio legend but I'm happy to be doing it from Nashville Tennessee and I have somebody a good friend of mine who I think is new to the show Mark Vandroff on the line Mark is this your first time on the Hugh Hewitt radio show Uh, it is Morgan thank you for having me inviting me on today uh you know I've 
a longtime friend of Hughes, but uh, uh, he never had me on the show. You, oh, you being his guest host, had me on the show. Well, Mark, I'm thrilled to have you on. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but just to let our audience know a little bit about you, you are a retired Navy captain. You are also a senior director at the National Security Council in the Trump administration. Tell us a little bit about what you did in the Trump administration. So I was privileged. Our, our mutual friend, uh, Ambassador O'Brien, brought me with him when he became the National Security He's Advisor. The uh, he brought me along. He is the best. Uh, he, he brought me along to run the defense policy shop at the National Security Council. So uh, I was in many ways the primary liaison that the National Security Council had with the Pentagon. Uh, and then I also worked uh, a lot of different issues, uh, security cooperation amongst them. Uh, with our partners and allies for those security cooperation issues that uh, rose to the level uh, to the White House. Also, yeah. military personnel, emerging technology, those all fell into my portfolio. Um, wow. So that, that's that was a big portfolio, Mark. That led me. It was. And, and the security cooperation aspect of it led me. I spent most of my time in 2020 uh, actually supporting uh, Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz uh, as part of the team working the Abraham Accords. I remember that well. That was a that was an amazing moment in time history for us. It's funny, Mark. I hear so many people now talking about Abraham Accords um, in the Trump administration. I kind of chuckle because you and I know there was like five of us who actually knew what was going on and that were a part of it. Uh, uh, but you know what? It was a really small group. And I trust every person in that small group because we all knew about it for a long time and it never, ever leaked. But listen, given your uh, position, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about today. But I think the most immediate need and, and I definitely want to talk to you about the China challenge. But before we get to China, if we look at, you know, unfortunately, what has gone on since October 7th. Now, I'm looking at these numbers are rough. I'm just looking in the last week. I've accounted at least nine attacks uh, on U.S. military facility facilities, and it looks like uh, the Pentagon is is saying at least 24 service members have been injured in these attacks. Now, unless I am wrong, Mark, I have not seen any retaliation or any consequences for Iran's proxies uh, that are launching attacks directly at U.S. bases. Can you fill us in of what's going on? So I, I don't know anything other than what's been in the press. Uh, I saw last night that initial report of the uh, of the, the report of 24. Uh, what I've been following, uh, given my background and in, in, in being a former naval officer uh, and also being a uh, uh, long time involved in the Navy's Aegis program, uh, mm. there was the reports of the, yeah. uh, the Aegis destroyer Kearney in the Red Sea uh, engaging uh, multiple targets. And I've I've heard over nine hours with multiple weapons, uh, different weapon systems, both the, mm -hmm. the surface-to-air missiles, surface-to-air guns, uh, and defending what was presumably cruise missiles and drones heading towards Israel from uh, Yemen, uh, although I would be interested in knowing how the Pentagon assessed that they were going to Israel, because if you're a ship at sea and a cruise missile is flying at you, you have, it's not immediately obvious whether you're the target or whether right, something right. downrange is the target. Yeah. Uh, Meaning you think that they could have been but, uh, uh, but launching directly at our ships, potentially. It, it, I, from from the reporting, I would say I don't know. Now, mm -hmm. the Pentagon seems in their in their public statements fairly confident that those were attacks on Israel. So I'll take them at their word that they had right. some other non-public information. Uh, I just don't know what that is. Uh, but what I would say is I've been tracking that because 
this is a in many ways the uh the the aegis system the surface air missiles that they yep. use the surface air gun systems they've had some hist- they've had a lot of testing and i was involved in that testing for much of my career to make sure they would work in combat but there have been few examples of combat since those systems have been introduced to prove out their effectiveness Interesting. Uh, and i think it's a credit to the navy over to the last generation of of development of uh, of yeah. uh, warfare system that those systems uh have shown at least in this engagement uh to work as designed and and as planned uh, I know uh, the I'm here in Wisconsin uh, for the for the job that I got uh, after the uh, the White House. Uh, my congressman, again, another mutual friend of ours, Mike Gallagher, uh, who represents the Green Bay area. Uh, yeah. Right. He's he's the best, uh, even for a Princeton guy. Uh, the uh, uh, he is very concerned about munitions. We have all mm-hmm. of these wonderful surface to air missiles and land yep. attack missiles. The question is, given all the different threats and all the different uh, potential hotspots in the world, not just as we've seen with Ukraine and now the Middle East and potentially in the Indo-PACOM. Do we have the supply chains and the munition chains in order to maintain the supply of these high tech, very effective weapons that our forces have? But can we supply them in numbers and in mass uh, in, in the event of conflict. And that's something I know he's been working. And that's something yep. I'm very concerned about as well. But I think the answer to that, Mark, I mean, and I was just talking about this on Fox Business on Stuart Varney's show, but I think like the week before the October 7th attacks is I, I think the answer to your question is, is we're not ready. We should be concerned. Uh, you know, Russia, and I think this is, you know, a bad mark on us. And this is not towards one administration. This is, you know, a problem across multiple administrations. Russia has been able to more uh, adequately and quickly uh, resupply their own munitions as they, you know, have, have disgracefully attacked Ukraine. But we seem to still have a problem in the United States uh, with our own supply chains, with our own defense industrial base as it relates uh, to munitions. And, and I guess, you know, Mark, it seems to me you're the expert on this. Uh, I'm in the Navy Reserves, but I'm a, I'm a few uh, officer levels down from where you retired as a captain. But it seems to me that we should be opening up uh, new uh, new production bases, new factories, new facilities and getting Americans to work building munitions. I mean, we need it for now. We need it for china we need it for israel seems pretty common sense to me what am i missing mark i i don't think you're missing anything uh morgan i i i hope that there'll be bipartisan support uh for expansion of the industrial base across uh, a lot of different sectors uh you know for for me and my current role uh running a, a shipyard that produces ships for the navy uh, i can tell you that uh that workforce is a challenge uh we've seen the navy uh, what does Congress that mean, Mark? Does that mean that you have a hard time? Through? Does that workforce is a challenge? Does that mean that you have a hard time hiring people to work in your shipyard? Yeah, I, I, I certainly if uh, you know, right. If uh, if there are anyone out there with a welding uh, or or pipe fitting or electrical yeah. skills, uh, I would invite them to go to uh, webuildships.com uh, if they're looking for jobs. But I can That's tell awesome. you that if you're a skilled welder right now uh, in the United States, uh, or even someone who's who's looking to have a career, a good career, and a, and a well-paying career uh, in something like welding or pipe fitting. Uh, the finding suitable candidates uh, is is a challenge, not just, and that's across the industry, and that's across more than just shipbuilding. Yeah. Uh, I would say that uh, on on the the all the different industrial trades, the folks who build missiles and the folks who build airplanes, the folks who build ships, the folks who build tanks, 
uh, getting trade work uh, to uh, yeah. and, and young people I, to either go into or stay in this the trade is such work a good point. Is, is a challenge for the industry. This is such a good point, Mark, you know, and especially when we see Senator Marsha Blackburn and I were just talking about the utter rot, uh, just institutional rot at so many of America's universities churning out kids with tons of debt, stupid degrees that don't help get a job. You know, my cousin, her oldest, I think he's like 16, 17, and he's a smart kid, but just doesn't necessarily think that traditional four-year college is for him. And she was just talking to him about welding. I'm going to tell him to go to webuildships.com, but she was just talking to her oldest about about welding about going to a trade school and i can't say you know if you want if you don't want to come out you know a hundred thousand dollars in debt with a useless degree go to a trade school become a welder work for mark vandroff <laughs> I, I will tell you here here in northeast wisconsin uh if you graduate from high school and enter our welding program uh and and you prove to be a good welder and and work hard within three years you will be making more than a starting attorney in the Whoa. district attorney shop here in this county without really? without having eight years of, of law school debt and college debt and having to there pass the bar, right? I will, I will make more as a lawyer. You'll make more as a welder than you will as a lawyer uh, here in Northeast Wisconsin. Well, listen, Mark Vandroff, I knew I was going to learn things from you this morning. Um, I'm so glad that you were on. we got to have you back. Mark Vandroff, retired Navy captain, former senior director at Trump's National Security Council. Just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, thank you, my friend. I am Morgan Ortegas. I am in for Hugh Hewitt. We have another 45 minutes left, so stay tuned in. Really interesting guests coming up. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, I hope you've been listening this morning. I know you're used to hearing Hugh Hewitt, and I'm somewhat of a fill-in for him. I'm Morgan Ortegas. I have been live all morning from Nashville, Tennessee, where I live. So happy to be here. The sun has come up in Nashville, and it is just beautiful. We're actually near the airport, and I am watching planes take off and land. So that's kind of cool. It's a cool way to do radio. Uh, I'm excited to have somebody new to the show. Uh, we've had a couple of new people to the show this hour. I met this gentleman when he was uh, running for Congress last cycle. He's a freshman uh, member, Representative Mitch McCormick. My friend, are you on the line? Yeah, it's uh, Rich McCormick from uh, Georgia 6. Thank you. Good morning. So tell us, um, we have been talking all morning. So let's see, we had some of your colleagues on, uh, Kat Kamek and uh, Andy Ogles, and they were telling us they were pretty high on Mike Johnson. So Rich, where do you stand? I think he's going to be great. He's a solid conservative. Mm -hmm. He was a former chair of the RSC. Uh, we consider ourselves a very conservative movement that really is uh, cerebral about our approach, really gets yeah. digs into the budget, really tackles the, the uh, deficit. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I have actually spoken to the RSC before. I need to do it again sometime soon. But but you, you guys are a serious group of people. Um, Rich, tell us that, you know, so I met you. Uh, we actually did a panel together uh, when you were running for office and we talked about national security issues. And I thought you were so smart in this space. Uh, you're also a veteran. So get, tell our audience a little bit about your background. We are very lucky to have you in Congress. So I was uh, 16 years in the Marine Corps, uh, flew helicopters, as you can see here in the background, uh, for about uh, two tours. I did another tour in an airborne unit called ANCO, so I was attached to 101st and uh, to 10th Mountain for the Army. I uh, did a couple tours with the Rock Marines over in Korea, uh, and then got out, went to medical school, came back in as a Navy ER doc sta stationed at Camp Lejeune, did a couple tours in Persian Gulf, Africa, 
and did my last tour in Africa as the head of emergency medicine in Kandahar. That's pretty amazing, my friend. I mean, wait, wow, what a what a long resume. Um, I want to talk to you, of course, what's going on in the Middle East. But we actually there's there's one subject that we haven't talked about this morning that is near and dear to my heart. You touched about it a little bit last summer when we were on that panel together. And unfortunately, this problem has gotten even worse um, since you and I uh, last spoke. Uh, and that is our uh, recruitment problems in the U.S. military. I think the Navy, if I'm remembering the stats, I think the Navy recently announced that we missed our goals by 30 percent. The only people that are meeting their targets are are the Marines. So URA Marine Corps. Uh, but the Army and the Navy are sh- struggling. I mean, these are like numbers that we haven't seen since the end of the Vietnam War. What in the world do you think is going on, Rich? Well, look how we recruit. Uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, I used to be the poster boy for the Marine Corps, uh, mm-hmm. the old knight in shining armor on the chessboard back in the early 90s. That's how old I am now. Uh, we always recruit the warriors. We go after the people who have this idea that they love their country. They would do anything for their country. Uh, you can't punish them too much. You can't ask too much. Uh, that's the kind of person you go after. The problem is that the Army and some of the other forces right now are trying to get into this idea that you're going to recruit, recruit some transgender or somebody with homosexual parents. Or, as if I, I don't really care. It's about the individual. It's about maximizing your potential, about challenging somebody to be yes. something better. That's what you want. As a matter of fact, if you don't challenge your Marines enough, they're not going to be happy. People want to be challenged. They want to do something worthwhile. They want to have something they can etch in their gravestone. I served my country. I did something for somebody else other than myself. I was recently at a sergeant major uh, gathering for the Army, and I was challenging him on these points. I said, you guys are all off on your recruiting goals. And he said, well, we're going to change. We're going to get back some things. Uh, and actually, we made a bet. And the sergeant major of the Army is going to be doing 100 push-ups in my office because he lost that bet. He thought they were going to get back on the recruiting goals. They've lost their focus. They keep on thinking that the woke idea is going to attract people to the military. It is absolutely the wrong approach. Go after the warriors. It's a wrong approach. And, and, you know, it's funny because somebody who works with me who is a part of the LGBTQ community, you know, he made this point to me, Rich. He said – you know, you could also appeal to me as somebody who is gay uh, for my sense of patriotism and duty and love of country. You know, it, it's not like like you said, you don't care what people do. All of that stuff is is allowed. But, you know, why we are trying to recruit people based on all of these woke ideologies, forcing people to get the covid shot. And, and what's worse, Rich, I heard secretary of the army. You know, she was asked about we know that so much of the military is based off of people join because their parents or their grandparents, you know, aunts and uncles were in the military. It's one of the reasons why I commissioned because of my sense of family legacy from both of my grandfathers and, and several of my uncles serving. Uh, and I was excited to be the first woman in my family to, to join um, the military. But, you know, the secretary of the army, Rich, said that she um, said that we didn't want to create a warrior caste in the United States. What in the H-E double hockey sticks does that mean? <laughs> that is exactly what we want is a warrior class. There are <laughs> yeah. people that yeah. are actually reaping the benefits of that warrior class. Uh, I, I'm actually kind of heartbroken. I had two sons out of my three that want to go in the Marine Corps. And uh, I think one basically got bit by the, the love bug with uh, some young lady. But the other one, <laughs> said, I'm not going to be part of uh, a woke uh, system that's not going to make me what I want to be, which is a warrior. Being a warrior should be ne- nothing you're ever ashamed of. That's something Absolutely. good. And, and like you said, it doesn't matter if you're 
you're gay, it doesn't matter if you're a male or a female, it doesn't matter what color you are, what religion you are, you want to know that you're doing something worthy and that you are something special. And that if there are bad people that want to do harm to this country, you will end them. That's the end That's of the right. story. That's right. I, I mean, you, listen, you said it perfectly. I just wanted to, to go on that rant because we have somebody, I mean, you're such an, an expert there. Um, one of the things, uh, Rich, I was just talking to Mark Vandroff about this. The reports are, is that we have at least 24 injured service members from the at least nine attacks in just the past week against U.S. military facilities uh, in the Middle East. What's the appropriate response whenever U.S. service members are injured from enemy attacks? Well, I, I think we have to be measured because of what's going on around the world. But with that said, I take this very personally. You come after ours, we come after you. And if you bring a knife, we bring a gun. You put one, They put one of ours in the hospital, we put one of yours in the morgue. That's the way That's we right. see business. This is serious. We don't play around. We don't allow ourselves to be targets. I hate the rules of engagement that, that cuff our hands. I've seen it since the Vietnam era where we, we limit our potential. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, we were raised in Clausewitz. Uh, you don't limit yourself. If you want to end a war quickly, you're going to do it a lot faster by being overwhelming force. If you draw it out, if you try to do measure responses, it always prolongs the agony. It always loses public support. I understand good people are going to get harmed in war. That is war. But that's going to happen no matter how measured you are. We need to end this. We need to be overwhelmingly superior in firepower. That is the American way. That is our advantage. You know, one of the things, too, so you're, you are on both House Armed Services and House Foreign Affairs. Is that right? Those are two plum committees. That is correct. That, that's, that's hard that's to correct. get. I'm you also got, on you, NATO, too. You got, you've got several big assignments there. So when we talk about uh, House Foreign Affairs, you obviously, uh, Rich, have seen a lot of what this administration has done, what Biden and his team have done to reverse Trump policies uh, in the Middle East. Uh, they have not enforced the sanctions against Iran. And now we know that Iran has made at least $80 billion off of oil revenues that they would not have had if Biden and his team had just enforced the sanctions uh, that are on the books and they're using that money. Uh, you know, listen, it seems like Hamas is not running short of any of rockets and missiles. You know, what is in the world is going on there, Rich? What is going on with the Iran portfolio in this administration? And it's not just uh, Hamas, it's Hezbollah. It's other terrorist yes. organizations all over the world. Iran is a worldwide sponsor of terrorism. They're evil. And it's not just the fact that we're we're not enforcing our sanctions, but we're also hamstringing ourselves. We're actually decreasing our revenue. Our, our tax revenue right. is actually going down. That's going to increase our deficit. That's going to decrease our economy. It's going to decrease our ability to pay off debt. That is going to hamstring us into the future. These are anti-American policies uh, produced by the Biden administration that are not only going to shore up Iran, shore up Russia, shore up China, but decrease our value and our global leadership. And that is unforgivable. This is a precarious time in world history, and we need to be prepared. We need to give us every advantage we, we can get. And that's why it's important to reach out to friendly countries like uh, India and Israel, make sure we shore up NATO, and we go forward from a position of strength, not weakness. Biden is all about showing our weakness. 
Can you give us a little insight into what the ground incursion uh, into Gaza that Israel needed to do? You have been involved in, in a lot of combat situations. And we know uh, I've had like David Bellavia, who was involved in Fallujah. Um, uh, we've heard people talk about what it's like to have to do urban warfare, hand to hand combat. Can you just explain to us what uh, the idea of troops are going to encounter when that ground incursion does start? Yeah, Fallujah is a good comparison. Uh, my predecessors that were in Fallujah as ER doctors, that was some of the busiest and the worst times uh, for our ERs overseas. Uh, we learned a lot. Uh, we have a lot of people who are missing limbs, who had traumatic brain injuries, a lot of deaths. We got good at tourniquets. But it is horrible, horrible stuff. There's no easy way to do it. It doesn't matter how much technology you have. You eventually have to go and clear a room, take out bad guys. These guys have had essentially years to prepare uh, they have set up booby traps. They have IEDs everywhere. They have entrenchments. In, in uh, they are dug in, and they're well-trained. What I understand is these guys are, are much more disciplined than they have been in the past. We still own the night. Uh, fortunately, I haven't heard of any NBG capabilities that they have that are uh, next generation that came from Afghanistan, but they are well-supplied, they're well-armed, they're well-trained, and they are well-prepared. It's going to be well- well, Rich, thank you so much for uh, your first time on The Hugh Hewitt Show. I hope that you will be back uh, whenever he or I host again. We are so lucky to have you in the Congress. And thank you so much for your brave service to our country and now in the Congress. Uh, that is Representative Rich McCormick um, from Georgia. I'm Morgan Ortegas. I've been in for Hugh all morning. We still have 15 minutes left. Join the last few minutes, please, right after this commercial break. Thank you, my friends. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Final 10 minutes of the show. I'm Morgan Ortegas in for Hugh Hewitt. Thank you so much for listening. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Somebody that we have on the line with us is reporting from Washington, D.C. That is Meredith McGraw from Politico. Good morning, Meredith. Hey, Morgan. How are you? I am good. I'll tell our audience, if you're not uh, following Meredith on Twitter, you should. When I'm being really lazy and don't feel like looking up the news for myself, I just look at Meredith's Twitter because she is able to uh, to make sure and retweet and send all the breaking news our way. So, Meredith, you spend a lot of time reporting on uh, former President Trump. You're following everything that's going on in the House. I thought your article was really interesting about how uh, you, I think the title of your article was how Trump, Trump excuse me, sank Tom Emmer's candidacy to be Speaker of the House. Can you tell us what actually happened there? How did that play out? Yeah, well, Donald Trump hasn't always been the biggest fan of Tom Emmer, and I think that was a two-way street. He started to make that known to some of his aides and allies on Friday, but it really seemed like Trump was going to stay out of this latest iteration of the speaker fight. He was asked about it when he was in New Hampshire on Monday filing for his presidency and had said that he had talked to Emmer on the phone on Sunday. They had a good conversation. Um, Trump's uh, spokesperson had said that it was very polite and, and cordial. And um, Trump said that for now, he was going to stay out of things. And the congressman retweeted a video of Trump's comments um, that Trump felt took his words out of context and made it seem like they had a much cozier and friendlier relationship hmm. than they had, that it was almost to an endorsement. And then um, Trump had also seen a comment by Emmer when he was asked 
uh, by CNN if, if he would support Trump. And he brushed that off. And uh, the former president saw that as well. And, mm. you know, those are two cardinal sins, I feel like, with the former president, making yourself seem closer to him than you are and um, maybe brushing off yeah. his endorsement. So I think between the two of those things and when Emmer went to the second vote and it didn't look like he had strong enough support, Trump decided to weigh in there and then start making calls um, expressing just how much he didn't like Emmer to some of the other members of Congress. And that seemed to be enough to tank uh, his hopes for the speaker. But mm-hmm. Trump, and, and so I'm just looking at your latest reporting, uh, Trump is, however, not opposing Mike Johnson. Do you think that means that Johnson can get to 217 at that noon vote today? I mean, that's the million dollar question, Morgan, is if yeah. he can actually pull this off. When you're looking at some of those votes, um, you know, that I think it was a few dozen had voted for other, meaning Kevin McCarthy. Um, So Trump put out a statement this morning saying he isn't going to endorse anybody, but his, quote, strong suggestion is that members go with Mike Johnson. Uh, He's sort of stayed out of the the limelight for a long while, hasn't seemed to be one of the members with big ambitions. So maybe that has saved him from having some of the same kinds of enemies in the House that we've come forward I was also just looking. We've got some breaking news, Meredith. Uh, uh, Help me make sense of it because I can't. But it looks like Governor Gavin Newsom is in China meeting with Xi Jinping. Do we know why or what for? So I woke up and saw those photos as well well of um, the California governor sitting there with Chairman Xi. Um, And, you know, it it said in the that he was there to talk about things like the climate. I mean, California has an economy, as you know, that's bigger than most countries. Um, And and they're talking to him about some of California's interests. He said that he brought up human rights with the foreign minister. I don't know if that came up in his conversation with Chairman Xi. But, you know, I will say the images are pretty striking in as, as we're looking forward to 2024 to see somebody who yeah. is often talked about as a, uh, you know, a, a potential replacement for President Biden, should he somehow decide he's not going to really do it this time? I can't imagine that um, the vice president woke up and loved those pictures this morning. She's got to be pretty annoyed. Right. I, I had that same response. Um, it, it looked awfully presidential. He is the governor of California, but the images of him sitting there next to she and sitting there at um, yeah. those long, long diplomatic tables, um, it was striking. It was, Yeah, it, it was fascinating. And I don't think the White House com- has confirmed this yet, but I've been reading reporting that uh, that Xi Jinping and Biden are, are likely to meet next month, that he may even be coming to the United States. I, again, I don't think the White House has confirmed any of this. But if the White House is working on a Biden Xi meeting to have to be sort of one up just a few weeks before that meeting by Gavin Newsom is um, an interesting choice by the governor. Yeah, I would say so. Um, there's been reports that she hasn't uh, confirmed that he's going to come and meet uh, with with Biden. I think that's yeah. in San Francisco in the coming weeks. But um, that's right. Uh, but I do wonder if that complicates things um, for their invitation, or if if that somehow um, 
will make it easier on making sure he, he visits. Well, listen, to our audience, if you are interested in reading reporting on President Trump, what's happening on the campaign, what's going on in Congress, national security, follow Meredith McGraw. She's a reporter from Politico. She knows her stuff, certainly. So I just want to thank our audience for listening to me today. Uh, Big shoes to fill with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Morgan Ortegas. I'll be back in uh, one day next week for Hugh whenever he is out. So until then, uh, thank you again for listening to me this morning, and I will see you next week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.